It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 341 for May 5th, 2013. This week, why you might want to download the Lightroom 5 beta version. Ben Long's discussion of lenses could be a challenge to your budget. In short circuits, Apple and Samsung continue to battle in court. Newspaper readership isn't exactly up, but it's declining more slowly because of online readership. And Apple, with $145 billion in cash, borrows money. Adobe is, as usual, working on a new version of Photoshop Lightroom, and the first public beta is now available. You won't want to use this for any production work, and the installer won't update any of your Lightroom catalogs, but you might want to grab the beta version for a test drive because some of the new features are remarkable. The new version will have six key improvements, and I'll mention all six of them, but one really caught my attention. Let's start with the Advanced Healing Brush. This makes it easier to remove problems and fix defects even when those problems have irregular shapes. For example, threads or utility wires or dust spots. Then there's Upright. That's the wow feature as far as I'm concerned. It's the one that really has my attention. Lightroom has made it possible to make some of these changes manually for a long time, but now they're all but automatic. In fact, in most cases, they're fully automatic. As the name suggests, you can straighten a tilted image with a single click, but it goes far beyond that. Upright analyzes images and detects skewed horizontal and vertical lines. You then choose one of four correction methods and watch the magic. With Radial Gradient, you can lay the viewer's eye through your images with more flexibility and control. The Radial Gradient tool lets you create off-center vignette effects or multiple vignette areas within a single image. Offline editing with smart previews. If I spent more time on the road, this would be a big deal. With Lightroom 5, you can work with small copies of your images, and when you return to home base and the larger images are once again available, the changes you made on the small images will be applied to the library images. Video slideshow sharing. Lightroom's slideshow functionality has been improved again. It is improved with just about every new version. Now you can combine still images, video, and music to create HD videos that can be viewed on computers and smartphones, and televisions if you still happen to use one of those. There is improved photo book creation. The photo book creation process continues to improve with more templates, and finally the ability to modify templates and to make them your own. But it's that upright feature that really gets my attention, and because this is so visual, you'll just simply have to visit the TechBiter Worldwide website and look at the before and after pictures. I started with a photo that I took when I was having a problem with a desktop computer. I pulled a notebook into service and decided to take a picture with a wide-angle lens. Uh, Vertical lines certainly weren't vertical, and there's some pretty clearly apparent distortion in the photo. So the starting point involves enabling what are called profile corrections. Lightroom examines the photo's metadata and learns what camera was used and what lens was used on the camera. It then automatically makes some corrections, and that made the image better immediately. Not completely fixed, but a heck of a lot better. And Lightroom offers four upright options. 
auto, level, vertical, and full. Auto is usually the best choice, but individual images might respond better to one of the settings or the other. So try them all. And notice in the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website how straight the lines are suddenly. You can still make some manual corrections if you want to. For example, in this case, the camera wasn't positioned exactly straight onto the scene, so there were a few additional, very minor, corrections that helped improve the image. I was so impressed that I actually went out in search of something that I could photograph badly and then correct it. Not too far from home, I found an office building that had some really nice, strong, vertical lines. But I tilted the camera up a little bit so I could get the entire building in the picture, and as a result, the building appeared to be leaning backwards, leaning away from me, and those vertical lines, well, they weren't vertical anymore. So I tried upright, and Lightroom made all of the corrections, no manual modifications needed. This is going to be a very popular feature. When you install Lightroom 5 Beta, the software will remain active through June of 2013. Once the final version of Lightroom 5 is available, and based on the time that Lightroom 5's beta is going to expire, I'm thinking that's probably June, then you'll have to either uninstall it or follow the new installation instructions to update your current version. Adobe cautions that this release is a public beta, not a final product, and I quote, Neither the quality nor the features are complete yet. We want to show you our direction and get your feedback so that we can incorporate it into future releases. This public beta release does not include all of the features that will be part of Lightroom 5, but instead gives you a preview of some of the new features. And what a preview. The download is available to anybody who wants to try it from Adobe Labs. You'll find the link to Adobe Labs on the TechBiter Worldwide website. This is a very visual edition of TechBiter Worldwide, and we'll continue by looking at how you can learn what your camera can do. I mean, after all, a camera is just a fancy box with a device that allows light to strike a sensitive surface. That could be film or a sensor. On the front, there's a tube with a lot of glass elements in it, and that's the piece that allows the photographer to create an image that matches a vision. Ben Long's lynda.com session on lenses brings the entire subject into focus. Eh, sorry about that. Any good photographer will tell you that it's the photographer who's responsible for making the picture, and that ultimately it's not about equipment. But a high-priced digital camera that allows more accurate shooting than a point-and-shoot camera does help the photographer. So does having the right lens. If you enjoy photography, you'll find all of Long's sessions at lynda.com worthwhile. And this latest one on lenses is particularly fascinating. Beware, though. After watching, you might have a great urge to go out and spend a lot of money. The good news, though, is that Long will give you plenty of pointers here, so you'll avoid buying the wrong lens, and he has some suggestions for how to obtain specialty lenses that you need only occasionally at a low cost. No larceny involved. Long is a photographer in San Francisco. He's also a writer and teacher. For the Lynda.com series, he is a natural because he seems quite comfortable in front of a camera while describing what goes on behind a camera. 
And technically, this series is helpful because occasionally Long sets up his camera so that we can see on screen what he's seeing through the camera. The series, which runs for just under four hours, starts with a description of what a specialty lens is, one that's longer or shorter than a normal lens, or has other special characteristics such as built-in swings and tilts. He then moves on to discuss wide-angle, super-wide-angle, and fisheye lenses. That's followed by telephoto and super-telephoto lenses, and then by what can only be called oddball lenses, the lens baby and Holga attachments, things like that. There's also an excellent session on close-up photography and macro lenses. Throughout the course, Long attempts to reveal money-saving options, such as close-up attachments instead of expensive macro lenses, and how to duplicate in software the effects of a tilt-shift lens. Each section begins with a down-to-earth description of the lens type. For example, here's Ben Long on ultra-wide lenses. Ultra-wides are great for shooting people in situations where you want to see their environment or things that they're holding or interacting with. When shooting people, you need to be very careful about distortion. With any wide-angle lens, it's very easy to create very unflattering portraits. With an ultra-wide, you can really make people look weird. Ultra-wides can be very effective for shooting interiors. If you're going for accuracy, you'll need to be careful that you're not presenting an inaccurate sense of the space of the interior. But for small spaces, these lenses are a great way to capture a wide field of detail. I like ultra-wides for street shooting because when you're out on the street just walking around, you usually have an awareness of a a fair amount of space around you. An ultra-wide lens lets you capture that expansive feel while simultaneously giving you kind of a more abstract, wider view than what you'd actually see. Like all of the lenses we'll be looking at in this course, ultra-wides are useful anytime you want a very different take on something that you're used to regularly shooting. I often find they work very well in situations that you wouldn't always think of as being a wide-angle situation. Have fun with skies. Ultra-wides are great for capturing huge skyfuls of clouds. Geometry is also a great source of super-wide subject matter. In addition to letting you capture longer lines and bigger geometric objects, ultra-wides let you show relationships between shapes and objects that you might not normally see. No matter what lens you're using, you should always experiment with changes in point of view, but with ultra-wides you can play a lot more. And moving on to telephoto lenses... The defining characteristic of these lenses is that they give you a tremendous amount of magnification power, making them ideal for shooting faraway objects. You'll use super telephoto for times when you can't get close to your subject. Nature shooters and sports shooters are the most obvious candidates for these big lenses. And then long on macro lenses. Depending on the focal length of your lens, that foot may or may not let you get a macro shot of your subject. Technically, a true macro image is one that shows your subject at exact size. We, we refer to this as shooting as at one-to-one. An inch in your image corresponds to an inch in the real world. With the right lens, it's possible to go even closer. The video shows each lens type in operation and how it can be used for creative effect. Long even touches on some important tricks, such as how to avoid the danger of having two filters locked together so solidly that you can't get them to come apart. And if you do make that mistake, how you can get them apart without resorting to the use of a large hammer. I strongly recommend Ben Long's Specialty Lenses program. And you can watch a few of the videos without subscribing just to see if you'll enjoy the rest of the program. You'll find a link that'll take you to lynda.com on the TechBiter Worldwide website. lynda.com offers numerous programs on a variety of subjects. Ben Long's growing selection of videos about photography 
are particularly welcome. Ben Long is also on Facebook, and there's a link to his Facebook page from TechBiter Worldwide, too. In short circuits, this kind of reminds me of 1984. The book, not the year. Apple and Samsung are still in court. They always have been and they always will be. It's kind of like the adaptation of the follow-up to the sequel of Friday the 13th. In November, Apple and Samsung will be back in court and Apple's attorneys will ask a jury to reinstate a $450 million damages decision from Samsung. Earlier this year, U.S. District Judge Lucy Koh reduced the $1 billion in damages that a jury had given to Apple by about half. Now the judge has set November for a retrial in which Apple will argue that it deserves the entire $1 billion. Apple won its suit against Samsung last year when a jury concluded that Samsung had violated Apple's patents in creating its Galaxy line of smartphones. Also this week, Judge Koh rejected a request from Samsung to move the case to the U.S. Federal Circuit Court of Appeals even before the question of penalty has been resolved. In other words, you haven't heard the last of this case yet. And separate from whatever happens in November in Coe's court, or later in the Court of Appeals, another trial is scheduled for March 2014th for round two of Apple's patent suit against Samsung. Wow, this is really great news for at least two law firms. Paper readership isn't exactly up, but it's not falling as quickly as it once was. A report by Christine Hawney of the New York Times this week provides a cautiously optimistic look based on digital circulation. This is good news, because as much as some people like to talk about their disrespect of the media, newspapers have been the best source of vetted coverage. Few radio stations outside of public broadcasting even make a pretense of having a news department these days. Television news, even at the network level, tends to be more about ratings and less about information. So newspaper reporters continue to be the people that Thomas Jefferson was probably thinking about when he said... Were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. Hawney's article noted that overall there was a small decline in total circulation over the past six months, but that digital circulation is rising. Perhaps surprising and definitely encouraging is the fact that digital circulation now accounts for about 20% of daily readership. The article is based on a report by the Alliance for Audited Media, which audits the circulation of nearly 600 daily newspapers. 593, if you want to be exact. Overall, the readership decline was seven-tenths of one percent. Hawney's report notes that the Wall Street Journal's circulation is the highest, 2.4 million. That's up 12.3% from last year. The New York Times is in second place with 1.8 million. That's up 17.6% from last year. USA Today's circulation dropped nearly 8% in the past year, putting it in third place at 1.7 million. And in fourth and fifth place, the Los Angeles Times and the New York Daily News. Readership figures include both print and digital subscriptions. Hawney notes, 
Last week, the New York Times Company announced that paid digital subscribers to the Times and the International Herald Tribune had grown to 676,000 by the end of March. You can read the full report on the New York Times website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Perhaps someone can explain this to me. Let's say that I have $5 million in the bank. And let's say that I have plenty of cash flow to take care of my daily living expenses. Why would I ask for a loan? That's what Apple seems to be doing. The company has approximately $145 billion in liquid assets, and now it's seeking to sell $17 billion in bonds. $145 billion, by the way, is more than the gross national product of countries such as New Zealand, Ukraine, and Bahrain more than the gross national product of the 100 smallest economies of the world combined. Or, as the New York Times put it, enough to buy every office building and retail space in New York. Those who know more about high finance than I do, and that's just about everybody, says that it's a deal designed to make stockholders happy. Once upon a time, business decisions were made for business reasons. Increasingly, they seem to be made only to please stockholders. Until this week, Apple was the only large company in the technology sector that had no debt. Zero. None at all. Not a dime. But last week, Apple announced its first quarterly earnings drop in about 10 years. And that, of course, led the pundits at Wall Street to near panic. You'd think they'd just been told they'd have to install Windows 8 on their brand new shiny Macs. So it appears that Apple will reward investors with a huge payout, a payout so large that it will drop the company's cash reserves to a meager $45 billion, or about the size of Costa Rica's gross domestic product. So, of course, Apple needs that loan. Apple will make these payouts to investors by paying higher dividends and by repurchasing some existing shares. That's made shareholders happy enough that Apple's stock prices rose about 10% this week. Apple's future, while far from bleak, isn't as certain as it once seemed. For the past decade, Apple's profits grew annually by 10% or more. Even a high-finance neophyte such as me knows that rates like those are not sustainable. Now that projections are in a more reasonable range, about 7% per year, investors have put on their sad faces. If Apple pays out $100 billion and has $145 billion in cash, why does it need a loan? Well, the answer, it seems, is actually pretty straightforward. Only $45 billion is really cash the company can put its hands on right away in the United States. So the company needs another $55 billion just to make the payout. Quick, Apple fans, buy something so you can please the investors. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.